welcome to Sense and Sensibility, the Inflation Guy podcast. I am Michael Ashton. I am the Inflation Guy, and I am your host. Today, we're going to talk about money velocity. That's the V in the monetarist equation of exchange, MV equals PQ. And I will say going in that the discussion of money velocity gets some people animated, as I guess a lot of economic topics these days do, because they're more significant. The more velo- uh, volatility we get in the economy, you know, these these discussions have more importance to them, more salience. And so I, I will say in advance that some people are going to disagree with parts of what I say over the next. 15, 20 minutes, whatever it is. And and pretty much everything that I say will find somebody who disagrees with with what I say. Uh, again, that's sort of economics. I mean, there's we uh, we have widespread disagreements about a lot of things, but I do find that that uh, people seem to dislike monetarists for reasons that I can't I don't really fully understand. It may be that it is it just seems too simple to be really useful. Uh, and if you've gone to school for many years for economics and and uh, gotten an expensive PhD, maybe you feel like you should be using a lot more math than monetarists typically do use. I, I don't really know, but um, you know certainly monetarists monetarism has been in favor at times and out of favor at times. And right now it is uh, considerably out of favor, although it seems to be making a little bit of a comeback. But but velocity is a key element of monetarism. If you can measure the amount of money, which maybe there's some question about that, but if we can measure the amount of money in a reasonable way, but we don't have any idea what causes changes in velocity, then then the model is a lot less useful. And if I was going to critique monetarism, if I was going to attack it, then that's where I would attack it. So monetarism, again, basically boils down to, a lot of it boils down to MV equals PQ. And so the the way to think about that equation and the reason it makes so much sense, the reason it's an identity, in fact, is that it basically says that the amount of, of dollars spent in a year... Uh, to buy things, M being the amount of money and V being the velocity of money of how many times a dollar is spent. And so that side of the equation is sort of the total number of dollars spent. That has to equal the total amount of stuff produced and sold. And that's the the Q, which is the, the real uh, real output times the price level of that output. And so PQ is the, the nominal GDP, the total amount of, of output. And so it sort of makes sense that that uh, those two things sort of have to be equal. The amount of money you spend on stuff should be the amount of stuff that got sold. And so if you're going to attack that model, you know, we, we measure money. We at least have some idea of how to measure money. There's different monetary aggregates, uh, and we can debate about how well we measure them, but we at least notionally understand what it is to what it means to count money. And and we understand notionally what it means to have a price level, an average price. And and the idea of real output 
you know, that's probably a, in a lot more dispute. Uh, people don't necessarily agree that GDP is correctly counted. Um, but it, you can't really attack – if you're going to attack monetarism, you can't attack the GDP side because that, that shows up in Keynesianism as well. So, you know, there are lots of there's, – there's plenty of room to critique GDP. And I know people who do, and I think there are very plausible arguments to be made that we don't measure real output correctly. Um, but, but if you're going to attack monetarism, that's not where you would focus. Where, we, where you would focus is on – velocity. You know, how do you measure how many times a dollar gets spent? And that's effectively what what monetary uh, velocity is. But this model is no more complicated. It, it's it's no more uh, no no easier to challenge than it is to challenge any element of the new Keynesian model, which is ridiculously complex. And there's lots and lots and lots of assumptions that you can attack. At least with the monetarist model, you can attack only a there are only a few things to really attack aggressively. And the main one, of course, is is velocity. So what do we know about velocity? Well, first of all, I always have to say, people who don't know a lot about monetarism and yet attack it, typically say that Friedman claimed that velocity was static. It clearly isn't. Therefore, Friedman was wrong. Therefore, monetarism is wrong. But Friedman never said anything that suggested that <laughs> velocity was static. And it's not necessary to monetarism that it be static. For it to be a useful model, uh, it is sort of necessary that we have some idea of what drives money, money velocity and again, people who don't know much about monetarism will say that it's sort of a random number. We don't really know what causes the movements in it, and so therefore the model is useless. Um, but we we do have some some good ideas of of what causes changes in monetary velocity. Now, Friedman did say, and this is sort of our first clue, that velocity is the inverse of the demand for real cash balances. So. In monetarism, the amount of money out there is is obviously very important, and we think about this in terms of cash balances, especially if you look at at M two, which is sort of uh, the one that I tend to focus on most. But at any given time, uh, the the level of balances is is fixed. Okay, if if you spend money. Uh, from your account and you go buy groceries, then you put it in the account of the grocer. If you spend money to buy a stock, then it, the seller of the stock gets the money and it goes into their account. If you buy a government bond uh, then at issue, then it goes to the, the government who has already spent it. That's why they have a deficit. And and when the government spends it, it goes into someone else's uh, account. And so you you can move around these different balances, but we can't really affect uh, through from the consumer side, we can't really affect the level of balances, right? So the main thing that moves there um, is the, the main thing that we can control as consumers, I guess, is how fast we spend the money. Um, you can't act actually lower the amount of balances in the system very easily. And obviously the Federal Reserve uh, and banks with their operations, do over time change the 
the level of the money supply and therefore the amount of balances in the system. And those do respond to certain other, uh, other uh, influences. Um, but, but those tend to be uh, less uh, important in sort of the medium and longer term in, in terms of the effect on, on money velocity. The big changes in velocity come from changes in, in spending behavior and in the, in, in the demand for real cash balances, uh, as Friedman said. So what makes me want to hold more cash, which implies a lower money velocity, uh, if I have a larger balance um, in cash, that means I'm, I'm spending it less frequently, what or conversely, what makes me want to keep a really low cash balance? Okay, so that which implies a very high money velocity, um, and and so think about this as as money being a hot potato. Okay, think about you know you've got a checking account, and when cash comes in, um, are you really trying to manage so that you don't have much cash in that account at all? Um, that you're either spending it or you're investing it, um, or or do you not really care and, and you don't mind having a bit of a, a larger balance in your checking account? What drives that decision? And it turns out that one of the large influences on that decision is the level of interest rates. If interest rates are, are extremely low, and I'm talking longer term interest rates here, uh, but if, if, if the five-year interest rate is at 14% and you're earning nothing on your checking account, then you have a very large incentive to not hold anything in your checking account and to put your money in a five-year CD. If, contrarywise, the five-year CD rate is a half of a percent, then why not hold cash? There's really not much of a difference there. And so you can sort of see that the level of, of interest rates, and in particular longer-term interest rates, uh, can influence the the uh, the level of money velocity it, it, by by changing the incentive to hold cash balances. So, the higher that interest rates go, the uh, the lower cash balances go, and therefore the higher money velocity goes. So, there's a positive correlation between the level of say ten year interest rates uh, and the level of money velocity. And this has been true for a very 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 long time. Now. That actually leads to an interesting uh, conundrum, an interesting puzzle. It's called the price puzzle in economics. And, and that is that when the Fed first starts to raise interest rates, when they first start to tighten in any given cycle, you tend to see an acceleration in inflation initially. Um, and and it, it's really sort of puzzling. You would think that the Fed tightens and immediately inflation goes down, but it doesn't. It goes up. And the reason it goes up is that the first thing that happens when interest rates goes up is that everyone lowers their cash balances because <laughs> they go out and they buy the bonds, right? And and when they do that, they're increasing money velocity, which increases uh, PQ, and that ends up increasing price the price level. So um, that's a short-term effect and it fades away, but... Uh, but that's a, a direct response to the rise in interest rates. Now, if you're earning interest, some some cash balances earn interest, and so this is it's more complex now than it was, say, in the mid '80s when cash always earned zero. Um, in that, if you if 
if your cash balance is earning interest, then and the Fed tightens, and so they raise short-term interest rates, but long-term interest rates don't go up, then you actually could have a Fed tightening leading to to lower velocity. That takes a fairly specific set of circumstances. Uh, you've got to have a lot of people who have interest-bearing cash balances. Those cash balances, those interest rates have to go up more than longer-term interest rates, um, and and other asset classes need to not be affected by the rise in interest rates. So it, it, it's a, it would be a fairly unusual thing to have the Fed start to tighten and have money velocity um, go down. But but. I want to concede that there are certainly circumstances that you can imagine where you can get some weird outcomes here. Um, but typically when we model it velocity, we model it as a function uh, first of, of interest rates. Now, that's not the only effect on monetary velocity. Um, another one, which is sort of co-integrated, if you will, with interest rates is the level of inflation expectations. So all else being equal, if interest rates don't change, but you start to expect more inflation, then that zero interest rate cash balance you have has a much worse real interest rate associated with it. You're, you, you know, it, it's less poison or it's more poison when, int- when inflation is going up. You're losing more of that purchasing power. And we, we actually have seen this in our business recently. And we have a strategy that we're, we're busy in, in the process of rolling out that um, is attempting to return monthly CPI instead of giving you zero on cash. It, it, the goal is to give you monthly inflation. And and that sort of strategy had very little uh, importance, was not all that appealing two years ago when the short-term interest rate was zero, but so, you know, but, but inflation was around, you know, one and a half. Now that inflation is around five and a half or six, then all of a sudden, people really hate their cash a lot more. And so you can sort of see that as inflation expectations rise, you don't want to hold inert cash if you can if you can get anything which has some sort of return to it. And by the way, this is, I think, one of the reasons that right now, um, even though we're seeing higher inflation, which normally is very bad for stocks, you're seeing equities do well. And part of the reason is that I think a lot of this cash is coming off of the sidelines and out of deposits and going into stocks, going into commodities, going into anything that promises, you know, or you know, at least a chance of beating inflation. Um, and uh, and of course, that always happens at the wrong time. But I think that's one of the reasons that we're seeing um, stocks go up. But in, anyway, inflation expectations um, are are an important input here to money velocity. Now you can sort of see that there is a an ugly feedback loop here that if you expect more inflation then you get lower cash balances and higher velocity and as you get higher velocity you get more inflation which presumably will lead you to expect more inflation and then could lead to even higher velocity so so with a lot of what happens in the inflation world in the inflation dynamic, a lot of the things we look at have these these recursive, these ugly feedback loops, where where you have vi- virtuous cycles that lead to you know f- lead positive things to lead to more positive things. You know, lower inflation 
uh, leads to lower interest rates. Lower interest rates leads to lower money velocity. Lower money velocity leads to lower inflation and so on. Um, and But also vicious cycles where, where higher money velocity leads to to higher inflation, which leads to higher interest rates, which leads to higher money velocity, um, or the the dynamic I just mentioned, where higher inflation expectations lead you to higher velocity, which I guess is part of that same cycle. And and that's the reason that inflation trends have persistence, and the reason that inflation has long tails is that you get these these recursive effects uh, building on on themselves. So inflation expectations is another driver of velocity. So uh, again, that's sort of part of interest rates. But if you can imagine a circumstance where interest rates don't move, which has sort of been the recent case, actually, that we've we've had a small movement in interest rates and um, and a fairly large movement in inflation expectations, you can see that that can lead to uh, by itself can lead to um, an increase in monetary velocity. Uh, something which is a little more difficult to measure is the demand for precautionary cash balances. When I model this, I use something like uh, economic volatility, um, and there's some very various ways to measure that. Um, market volatility might be one proxy. But the idea is that when people are scared, all else equals – all else, all else equal, if you are scared, you tend to hold more cash. If you're not sure what the, what the future holds, you, you keep a rainy day fund. And if you're very, very confident about what's happening out there, if things are good, if we're in the salad days of, of, you know, a, a, of a, a global expansion, then you tend to hold less cash. And so... So precautionary demand for, for cash balances leads to lower money velocity. And that's part of what, what we had in this most recent crisis is people were holding more cash than they would otherwise have held because of COVID. They didn't know what was going to happen. And so, you know, all else equal, you would hold more cash. Now, th- those three things are the way I have modeled velocity for a long time. And it's a pretty successful model. Um, recently, I've been talking to some people about a fourth thing, which I guess I guess I I believe is plausible, and that's that there's a the demographic profile of these of cash balances um, could affect velocity, and and what I mean by that is if if cash balances are mostly held by the wealthy. Wealthy in general have a lower propensity to, to consume and and so might tend to sit on cash balances that are, are larger than they otherwise would. Whereas people at the lower income part of the spectrum don't tend to have very many cash balances. If it comes into their uh, checking account, it gets spent right away. And so if and so ordinarily that wouldn't be a big effect because the profile of the demographic, the demographic profile of cash balances sh- shouldn't change a whole lot over time, uh, over short periods of time. In the most recent crisis, it was actually it was actually quite quite substantial how much that changed because a lot because uh, everybody got a large check. And that check was relatively larger if you were at the low end of the 
of the income spectrum. It was a, a, a much larger check relative to your income than it was for the wealthy. So it didn't change wealthy savings all that much, but it, it changed the, the savings for the, the less wealthy by quite a bit more. And so it did change the demographic uh, structure of, of those balances. And, and that's one reason, along with the increased precautionary demand for these cash balances, that velocity plunged in this, uh, in this most recent crisis. Um, now, as that money eventually gets spent, um, so you know, if you think about those cash balances, you know, how will the the prior demographic structure of cash balances will it get restored? Uh, and the answer there, I think, is it almost certainly will over time. Um, either the low income people will end up spending a lot of that money because they have to. Um, or they won't, which means that they'll be higher up in the demographic stack. And so at the end of the day, the people who are, you know, who are wealthiest have the most cash. And conversely, those who have the most cash are also wealthiest. And so, and so to some extent, I think that giving large amounts of money to the poor in a crisis can depress monetary velocity a lot and lead to more spending. But it doesn't stay that way permanently. And so where we are now is we're at very low levels of monetary velocity for, for all of these reasons. We've got low interest rates, although they're headed higher. Until recently, we had low inflation expectation. They're headed higher. Uh, in COVID, uh, through much of COVID and even coming out of COVID, we have a greater than usual demand for precautionary cash balances, which tends to depress velocity. And... A lot of the government largesse has gone to the the low end of the income spectrum, which tends to, well, which I speculate <laughs> will tend to to decrease monetary velocity. And I'm 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 putting more caution on that last statement because I'm not I haven't done the depth of research necessary for me to be very confident that that's the case, but it's plausible to me. But all of these effects have been pushing down monetary velocity, so it's the lowest it's been in history. But these things are changing, and, and this is the scary part looking forward for inflation is that going forward, we are starting to see higher interest rates. And to the extent that central banks are worried about inflation, we just uh, saw a reaction from the Bank of England and the Bank of Canada today um, that suggests that they are more they're more apt to be raising inter, uh, interest rates in the future. The Federal Reserve is supposed to start uh, tapering its quantitative easing fairly soon and sometime next year may raise interest rates. We, you know, growth is currently quite strong and, and markets are strong, which tends to, to lower the demand, the precautionary demand for cash balances. Um, and and the demographic profile of these cash balances is is going to gradually go back to what it once was. And so the collapse we saw – so in the crisis, we saw this massive increase in money and the collapse in monetary velocity. And we kind of expected a lot of that, money, that collapse in money velocity. But one of the things that I said a lot and uh, I think is – 
I, I continue to believe very strongly, is that we cannot sustain that level of monetary velocity. It is very hard to have uh, money moving as slowly through the system as it did for the last 12 months, 18 months. And so that's going to go back to normal. And so unless we start to drain the actual money balances out of the system, unless we decrease the money supply, the recovery, uh, the eventual recovery in monetary velocity is going to make inflation much more persistent on the upside than I think people are ready for. So that's where I think we are going. And that's all about monetary velocity. As I said up top, there's, there are, there's a lot to disagree with in here. There's a lot of debate about this stuff. Um, and, and you may well disagree with many of the things that I have said. Um, I do hope you enjoyed the episode anyway. And if you do have some disagreements that you would like to express, um, or you have some agreement you would like to express, or you just would like to express yourself, come to EnduringInvestments.com and fill out the, the uh, uh, contact form and, and I'll get back to you. Um, if you want to talk about anything related to inflation or our strategies, go fill out the contact form. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter uh, at inflation underscore guy because I am the inflation guy. And you have been listening to Sense and Sensibility, the Inflation Guy podcast. Defend your money. And when inflation comes for you, remember... You know a guy.